Good morning, everybody. Welcome two, to two the pastors today. Two pastors. Today. Extra long sermon. Buckle up. We'll be here for two hours. Um, it is wonderful to see you. If we have not met before, my name is Austin. I'm one of our lead pastors. This is Dave. He's our other lead pastor, and we are really, really glad that you joined us. Um, so last week we took a break from our sex talk series. Uh, we figured you all needed a break of hearing Dave and I talk about sex, and so we heard from our very gifted and talented friend Sean Palmer. He did an awesome job. Would encourage you to go check out his sermon from last week. Yeah, you can clap for him. I'll tell him you clap. Um, and then today we are resuming and concluding our sex talk series with a little bit of a Q&A. Uh, and so I think we'd want to start with just uh, a little word of encouragement and just say that we know like, that this series has been really tough in a lot of ways. Like, it's not a series we wanted to do. It's a series we knew we needed to do that we have discussed some really difficult and delicate topics that have the capacity to divide and destroy churches and families and relationships and definitely Thanksgiving dinners if you got caught talking about any of it. It's really, really, really difficult. Uh, and yet, for the most part, we have been so proud of the way our Vista family has responded and been able to have a conversation here that you just couldn't have in a lot of places, honestly. Uh, James 1, 19 through 20 is one of my favorite texts in all of scripture. Here's what it says. I've been reminded of it a lot during the series. James says, know this, my beloved brothers and sisters. Everybody must be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not accomplish God's justice. And I think it would be fair to say that, that we live in a culture that mostly encourages us to do the exact opposite of everything James just said, right? We live in a hyper-partisan, argumentative, self-righteous culture wherein we have all been taught to be quick to speak, quick to anger, quick to condemn, and then very, very slow to listen. And yet, so says James, um, the, the anger and argumentative self-righteousness of man and woman cannot achieve God's justice. And that's why in our current cultural climate, it is so important that the church be a counterculture where we take the time to listen, to understand, and to love. I mean, can you think of any better witness we have for our world right now, our culture, than for people to be able to look at the church and say, man, those are the most understanding, best listening people on the face of the planet. Right? I hope that's what people would say about us here at the Vista. And so, uh, for the most part, we've done a really, really good job. We've still got a little ways to go, especially Dave. Um, but for the most part... Long ways to go. <laughs> for the most part, we've been really proud of the way our Vista family has responded to all this. And so we had a number of really great questions submitted. We can't possibly get to all of them, especially in a Sunday morning uh, context. You guys some gave us some doozies. We're not we'll completely appropriate for a Sunday morning. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll get to those at a later time, I'm sure. Um, but... Well, we try to compress it down to the questions that were most helpful and appropriate for a Sunday morning Q&A context. And so, Dave will uh, discuss our first question. It was submitted in a number of different forms. Why save sex for marriage if you love somebody? Yeah, this is a question that, that we get periodically uh, in, a, in a young church, a lot of young couples. Again, Austin mentioned it's, it was submitted in a number of different forms and ways. Uh, one that was similar to that is we know that, that people got married earlier in the first century in Bible times, and so is it really realistic to ask someone to wait that long to have sex? And so uh, the short answer to the question is, uh, yes, it is reasonable, and because God said so. Um, but, uh, and, you know, let's be honest, like as believers, that ought to be enough, right? We, uh, we ought to be most concerned with walking in obedience to what God has laid out in Scripture and being faithful to that. Um, but I also know as a parent that I can only get, along, get, get away with because I said so, uh, for, for, for so long, right? Like, uh, my kids are young, it's because I said so. But as they get older, I know as a parent 
that you better be prepared to give the reason why you say so, right? Uh, uh, that, won't, that won't last forever. And so let me take just a, a moment and kind of unpack. This is the way God has laid this out in Scripture. Um, and first I'll say this, something that I've said repeatedly here during different sermons, um, but that is that uh, God is the one that, that created us. He is the one that breathed life into us. Uh, he has wired us. Um, and as such, he's the one that knows how our lives are to be lived um, in order to flourish and to receive maximum joy. Um, and so what that means is God puts some rules or commandments or laws in place. They are not antithetical to our joy. Uh, they are for our good and for our joy. A lot of times what happens is we think, man, there's all these rules and all these laws. It's like God's trying to prevent me from having some fun or something. But uh, God's rules and God's laws are in place. Not, they're not uh, against our joy and our fun. They are for our good, for our benefit, and for our joy. And I think we have to keep that in mind, uh, first and foremost, when we think about why God puts these rules in place. So with that as sort of the foundational piece, um, let me just uh, mention why this is so important that sex be saved for the, the context of marriage. In Genesis 2.24, this is a verse we've gone to probably every sermon in the series. We've referred to it or read it. So you can turn there if you want. We'll throw them up on the screen as we always do. Um, in this verse, um, God has created Adam. God then recognized that there was no helper suitable for Adam. So God uh, creates Eve from Adam's side. And the Bible says God brings Eve to him and gives her to him to be his uh, helper, to be his wife. In Genesis 2.24, you have a, a wedding and sex mentioned in, mentioned in the same verse, okay? And so it says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Some translations will say cleave to his wife. Uh, some will say be united to his wife, um, hold fast to. However, uh, your translation of Scripture interprets that Hebrew word, it means the same thing in the Hebrew. It literally means a binding covenant or contract. That's the marriage. That's the wedding. That's the, 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 the covenant of marriage right there. The very first thing that happens between Adam and Eve is this covenantal bond, this covenantal relationship that takes place. And then it says they shall become one flesh. Uh, and that, of course, is the uniting act of sex within marriage that takes place there, Genesis 2, verse 24. Marriage is a covenantal relationship. Uh, a covenantal relationship is different than a consumer relationship. Uh, a consumer relationship is one in which you stay in it so long as your needs are being met at a cost acceptable to you. That's what a consumer relationship is, but marriage is not a consumer relationship. It is a covenantal relationship where the good of the, the relationship always takes precedence over the immediate needs of the individual. Uh, marriage is the most deeply covenantal relationship there is. Um, it brings uh, the, every aspect of two people's lives together. Um, so much so that they essentially, as it says in 224, they merge into one single uh, legal, social, and economic unit. That's essentially what marriage does. Through the covenant of marriage, two people donate themselves wholly, fully, and completely to one another in every way, where there is a ferocious commitment that goes beyond just mere feelings, right? Mere feelings where, you know, I feel some warm, fuzzy things about you, but let's be honest, that fades. And so in a covenant relationship, um, there is a ferocious commitment that says, no matter what, I'm with you. No matter what, I'm in this. No matter what, we are staying together, thick or thin, richer or poorer, poorer or poorer, right? Uh, in sickness and in health, 
no matter what, we are going to stick together. That is a covenantal relationship. Sex then, after the wedding, within marriage, um, is the consummation of all of that uniting that takes place in the covenant. Um, Every sexual act then in marriage is to be a uniting act between a husband and a wife that brings oneness uh, together. And so we see this all through Scripture. It's laid out very plainly and clearly in Genesis chapter 2, and then all through Scripture we see this idea of the covenant of marriage being the context for a sexual relationship. Um, I'll mention one other place. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you can turn there again if you'd like. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is addressing the church. And a lot of times we like to think our culture is, is just different than it was back, in, the, back in, in biblical days. We like to say it's so much harder for us than it would have been for them. And I would remind you that, um, again, the culture in, in Corinth in particular was incredibly sexualized. They had a culture very much like ours that would say, have sex with whoever you want, whenever you want. Sex is just physical. It's no big deal. And Paul writes to uh, the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 15, and he says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh, quoting Genesis 2.24. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. What Paul is essentially saying here is that you should not unite with someone physically unless you're also willing to unite with them emotionally, personally, socially, economically, legally, and in every other way. Um, that, that it's not just this physical thing like we talked about several weeks back. It's this uniting act that brings oneness in the covenant relationship of marriage. Um, and a lot of times people think, man, the, the Bible has such a low view of sex. That's why it always seems to be against it. And um, I, there's a quote by Tim Keller, who's one of my favorite uh, pastors. Um, and, and I thought this was really good. He says, the Bible does not counsel sexual abstinence before marriage or outside of marriage because it has such a low view of sex, but because it has such a lofty one. The biblical view implies that sex outside of marriage is not just morally wrong, but also personally harmful. And so, again, sex is a God-given gift for procreation and our joy. But it comes with some rules regarding context for our good. When, it, when it's used outside of the proper context, this very good gift becomes sinful and it has harmful effects. And so, always remembering that God's rules and laws are for our joy and for our good. Anything you want to add? No, you know that. Great. We're done. I'm just kidding. Um, next question. Austin's going to take this one. If homosexuality is a sin and humans were designed for connection, how are we expected to live a lifetime of celibacy? How are we expected to live a life of solitude? And how should the rest of the church step in? Yeah. Um, so a couple of weeks ago when we discussed same-sex behavior, um, we mentioned that the church has really done a catastrophically poor job of providing any sort of constructive guidance because all the church has basically said is, well, same-sex behavior is wrong, so don't do it, and good luck with that, which has been every bit as unhelpful as you might imagine it would be. Uh, Andrew Sullivan is a really great writer who's also a Christian who is gay, and listen to how he describes his experience of growing up gay in church. He says, in over 30 years of weekly church going, 
I have never heard a sermon that attempted to explain how a gay man should live or how his sexuality should be expressed. I have heard nothing but a vast and endless and embarrassed silence, an awkward, unexpressed desire for the simple non-existence of such people, such people being gay people. Uh, and I got to tell you, in my conversations with people who are gay, this is always the most heartbreaking part of their story because many of them uh, want to hold to the church's traditional view on this because they believe that Scripture would say a same-sex marriage is not an option for them. And so they know what they shouldn't do with their same-sex attraction, but they have no idea what they should do with it. Uh, Wesley Hill is a gay Episcopal priest who has chosen to live a life of celibacy because he believes it's what Scripture requires of him. And listen to how he frames this question. It's really helpful. He says, how should a gay man or woman live? How should a same-sex attracted person like me express his sexuality rather than merely repress or try to deny its existence? Okay, so I know what not to do with it, but what exactly am I supposed to do with it besides just repress it and pretend like it doesn't exist? And for the best answer to that question I found, you ought to read Hill's book. It's called Spiritual Friendship, Finding Love in the Church as a Celibate Gay Christian. It's a wonderful book that I'd really recommend for everybody to read, honestly. Uh, And so briefly here and following his lead, here are a few thoughts towards an answer. Uh, We live in in a culture where we have become almost incapable of deep, abiding friendships. In fact, I don't think it would be much of an exaggeration to say that we live in one of the most anti-friendship cultures in the history of the world. And we don't know any better because it's all we've ever known. Uh, But there are a number of different reasons for this. First off, Sigmund Freud, you remember Freud from Psychology 101, the troubled uh, but genius father of modern psychology. He basically eroticized or sexualized all relationships for modern people, so much so that modern people like you and me are almost incapable of imagining a deep, fulfilling relationship that is not also sexual in nature. Right? Freud ruined us on this and just said, hey, it always has to be about sex, and if it's not ended up terminating in sex, then it's not really a deep, abiding, fulfilling relationship. Uh, second, our culture has adopted what I think is probably a, a borderline idolatrous perspective on marriage in the immediate nuclear family where the husband, wife, kids, family unit, right, your immediate nuclear family, has become sinfully obsessed upon in a lot of our culture, so much so that we don't really think we have any responsibilities to anybody outside our immediate nuclear family. And that's just not a Christian way of of thinking. It's certainly not what Jesus taught. And then third, uh, we have become so absorbed with our work and our own personal freedom and autonomy, me doing what I want to do on my terms, that we just don't really have the time for the obligation and the responsibility that is required for the creation and maintenance of deep, abiding friendships. All that to say, uh, this anti-friendship culture is most that uh, is all most of us have ever known. But things haven't always been this way, and things don't always have to be this way. Uh, in fact, friendship was once such a cherished institution in culture and in the church that it was celebrated in much the same way marriage was. Okay, ready to wrap your brains around this? Uh, in fact, there was even a ceremony in ancient culture in the ancient church called the rite of brother making. Okay? where two friends would make vows of loyalty and love to each other, right? share communion in front of their church family, and that ceremony would then end with a prayer like this. This is an ancient prayer from a, a friendship ceremony. It says, O Lord, our God Almighty, send your holy angel upon these, your servants, this friend and that friend, that they may love each other as your holy apostles Peter and Paul loved each other, 
And as James and Andrew loved each other, and John and Thomas loved each other, not through the bonds of birth, but through faith and by the love of the Holy Spirit, and that they may abide in the same love all the days of their life. Okay? Now, you and me, right, we, we hear this and we're like, that is so weird. Right? Like, why would friends make vows to each other? And here's what we need to understand. This is not weird. What's, what's weird is you and me and us thinking that's weird. What's weird is our culture and our incapacity for remembering what it means to be somebody's friend, that it's not a disposal consumeristic relationship that vows are made and kept. And that's a topic in and of itself, our anti-friendship culture. But in the context of our question, here's the point. One of the main reasons why the church has struggled to give people who are gay constructive guidance on how to live is due to the church's forsaking the practice of deep, abiding spiritual friendship. And so rather than buying into the modern lie that the only relationships that count and are fulfilling are sexual in nature, right? That's Freud talking. It's not Jesus. It's certainly not the church. The church must recover the practice of spiritual friendship so that instead of banishing people who are gay to a life of repression and loneliness, which we have done, the church can instead create spaces where people who are gay and or celibate can experience the deep abiding relationships that God designed them for. All that to say, we do believe that Scripture teaches that heterosexual marriage or celibacy are the two biblical options for every person, gay or straight. But the modern church has done celibacy so poorly. I mean, it's one of the things we've done the worst. That we have basically banished gay and celibate people to a life of repression and loneliness. And yet, it it doesn't have to be that way. Because Jesus Christ, you know Jesus, right? He's a big deal around here. Jesus Christ was a celibate man who lived his entire life without sexual contact. Remember that, right? King Jesus was a celibate man who lived his whole life without sexual contact. And so how dare we Christians think that you can't live a deeply fulfilling life without sexual expression? And the church has a deep practice of spiritual friendship that she must recover so that celibate people can experience the deep and abiding relationships that God designed them for. And so to all of our celibate, same-sex attracted Vista family members, okay? Uh, and again, about half of our church is single. I know sometimes the impression is that it's all just a bunch of you know, young families running around with 14 kids from age 2 to 5. Um, it, it's not true. Half of our church is single, okay? And so just on behalf of our church leadership, like we're, we're sorry for the ways that we have neglected you if you're celibate or single, because we have. And we need you to call us to repentance for the ways that we have idolized our families, I know I have mine, I've idolized my family and my work and my own personal freedom and autonomy and we need you to help us find constructive ways forward. We need you to help us remember what it means to be somebody's friend, as simple as that is. Yeah, very well said. I, I think it's really good to be just reminded that, that while sex is a good gift, it's not an essential gift for a good life. And so to Austin's point, Jesus, the Apostle Paul, and many other faithful uh, men and women throughout history have lived healthy, happy, satisfied, fulfilled lives of celibacy. And so um, I, I think that's, that's very well, very well said, very true. All right, our next question, this one, uh, David will take this one. What advice do you have for spouses who struggle with sexual intimacy? Marriage counseling 101. Here we go, right? Um, first of all, I would say that all couples at different times and to differing degrees probably struggle with intimacy 
um, again, at, at all times. And what I mean by that is I, I've just never met the couple uh, that is always 100% of the time completely and totally on the same page regarding, regarding sex, regarding uh, attitudes about sex, enjoyment of sex, frequency of sex, all of it. I've just not met that, that couple. And so now, to be clear, some struggle uh, more than others. And, um, and what I, I would take a little bit of time and just say there's, there's, there can be different reasons for that struggle with intimacy. Um, Number one, it may be that, that sex isn't the problem at all, that intimacy isn't, uh, into, isn't the problem, but there could be some other underlying problems in the marriage um, where couples just feel distant from one another, um, making intimacy really, really difficult. Um, if your marriage isn't in good sort of working condition, then sex just won't work, and it certainly won't just fix the problem. And so... Um, if there are some other underlying issues in the marriage, the best advice that I would give as a place to start would be some really good Christian marriage counseling um, that can be helpful where you can uh, get with someone and just be honest and real about some struggles and, and see if you can seek some help and guidance. Um, it could also be that there are some other deep uh, emotional or even physical wounds from the past that just haven't really been fully dealt with, um, also making intimacy really, really difficult. These might be things that your spouse is aware of, um, or even things that your spouse isn't aware of at all. And so again, uh, some counseling can help. There are also uh, Christian sex therapists that can help with intimacy if that's an ongoing problem because of some deep, deep problems from the past. And then the third one, I, and I would think this is quite common, it may be that one spouse just has a higher sex drive or wants to have sex more frequently than the other. Um, that's actually quite common and quite normal. Um, and here's what I would say to couples where, where that is the issue. Um, I would say to remember that sex is a gift. We talked about this in the very first sermon of the series. The biblical view of sex is, is not that it's like this gross, awful thing that like Satan snuck in there when God wasn't looking. And it's also not, um, it's not something that's to be, to be worshiped as like the supreme thing that life is about, um, but it is a good gift from God. And as a good gift, um, there's, there's, there's different ways to perceive a gift. I would say that an immature person perceives gifts very different than a mature person. An immature person um, primarily looks at gifts um, and says, I'm entitled to that. They are for me, my benefit, right? Like, so when I was a kid, Christmas time, my birthday, I expected a gift. It was all about Dave. It was about Dave getting his gifts. That's what an immature person thinks of gifts. They're for me and I'm entitled to those gifts. A mature person thinks of gifts as something that they get to give and bless. You're going to stay in prison. Anybody that would tell you that because you know Jesus, it's just going to be a, a much smoother sailing and, and everything's just going to all in your life, there's not going to be a lot of suffering involved, just hasn't really realistically looked at what the Bible says. I would remind you that every one of the disciples of Jesus dies a martyr's death. Every one of them. That doesn't exactly sound like victorious Christian living, like living your best life, does it? Not what cultural Christianity often teaches. Sometimes it's going to require some suffering. Sometimes God's going to shape us, teach us, grow us in the midst of the trial, and it's good for our soul. And yes, it's not all doom and gloom. There is amazing reward. There is great reward one day when Jesus comes back again. It is absolutely worth it, but... Sometimes we don't prepare because we just kind of think, you know, it's just going to be easy. It's going to be easier. It's just going to be easier. So the question then becomes, how do we prepare? 
what should we be doing in order to prepare, in order to... Go so far as to say that these state secular courts should be, and I quote, of no account in the church. That's what Paul says. These state secular Supreme Courts that you all look to, you think is the most sacred institution in all the land, yeah, they shouldn't even matter in the people of God. We shouldn't even need them. It is a, you know, a, a shameful for us to need recourse to them because we can't handle our business in-house. Okay, and so here's Paul. He's going full anarchist here, okay? Full anarchist. Taking on the whole legal system because he has such a high view of the church. Paul, down deep in his gut, and you can't understand Paul unless you believe, uh, understand this, he believes that the church has wisdom and resources that the world just never can. And so if we don't show the world that there's another way. Susceptible to the coronavirus, on the other hand. And again, those are, those are difficult, nuanced conversations. But to be honest, um, one of the things I have found most disappointing is the rather cavalier attitude that many of us have displayed toward those who are older in our community. Uh, This notion that older people, by virtue of being older, are just a little bit more expendable than younger people are. And again, nobody's really saying that out loud. Well, actually, a few people have said that out loud, sadly. Uh, But it is clearly the assumption working beneath the surface of a lot of the conversations that are going on right now. And, uh, of course, this kind of subliminal apathy toward people who are older really should not be that surprising in a culture such as ours where human worth is primarily measured in terms of economic productivity. Now, Stanley Hauerwas, he's one of my favorite theologians in the whole world. He's, he's a Texan who says too many bad words. He wrote a very perceptive essay a couple of years ago about his retirement and more specifically about what it was like to get older. And he made the observation that in a culture where the primary goal is a thriving economy, there always exists the need to push older people out of the way so that they can be replaced with younger, cheaper, and more energetic workers. And over time, this of course results in a culture where older people are not only pushed out of the workplace, but they are pushed out of culture and society in general and pushed into their own quote-unquote retirement culture. Hence the creation of things like retirement homes and nursing homes, which didn't even exist until very, very recently. Retirement communities in Florida or Arizona or wherever. And so he notes that older people are increasingly isolated in modern culture. Because once they can't meet the uh, the quote-unquote speed requirements for modern work, it's assumed that they don't really have anything to offer us anymore. That's kind of a sad, humbling thing to say, but it's quite obviously the way our culture works. Look around you. And so while I, I don't know, I'm not smart enough to know how to calculate what measures net out the greatest common good in the midst of a pandemic. I don't know how to do that equation, and I don't think anybody knows how to do that equation. I don't know that, but here's what I do know as a Christian, okay? Older people are not more expendable than younger people. And it feels kind of weird that I would need to say that, but apparently I do, so I'll say it again. Older people are not more expendable 
than younger people. That's a great idea for a tattoo, by the way. If you're just looking for tattoo ideas while in quarantine, right across your chest, maybe on your forehead. Older people are not more expendable than younger people. Indeed, uh, the older members of our church have gifts that we desperately need, especially right now. Specifically, we desperately need their wisdom because you can't microwave wisdom. And we desperately need their memory. And that's why in the church, we don't just tolerate older people. We don't pity older people. No, rather we cherish them because we understand how necessary and essential they are. We understand, as verse 22 says, that those members of the body which might appear weaker to immature eyes are actually profoundly necessary. We understand that God has designed this this diverse, odd, and complicated family called the church so that there would be no division and everybody would care for everybody. Let's pray together. Gracious God, this world is filled with people who are not like us. And that can be very irritating And we wish the world was filled with people who were more like us. And yet, God, you have designed our diversity in order to ensure our dependence and facilitate our unity. And so we surrender to your wise and gracious design. And we ask that in this season that we're in, where we have been made particularly aware of how much we need each other, you would use our differences to pull us together, not push us apart. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.